the father was desperate. And you can understand. His son couldn't talk. But that wasn't the worst of it. His son would have fits in which he would throw himself down to the ground. His body would twist and would turn wildly. But at other times his body would just lie on the ground rigidly. The boy couldn't control himself. He would often foam at the mouth as if there was some other power controlling him, even at the points in which he was driven to be thrown into the fire or in some body of water. And in desperation, as any parent would want to do, you look for help. You look for someone who can heal. And so the father sought out those that he thought could heal. But they couldn't. But then he met up with the specialist, the great physician. And the father approached him and said to him, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And that great physician responded, If you can? All things are possible for one who believes. To which the father responds, I believe. Help my unbelief. I've made it a bit more contemporary, but you know the story. Jesus, all right, this is what, this, as Mark records it for us in Mark chapter 9, this father who goes to Jesus because his son is tormented by an evil spirit. And it seems to me that here's a man who believes, but yet who recognizes that he needs something else. Help my unbelief. That's his petition to Jesus. Have you ever said that? Have you ever felt in your life, Lord, I believe, I believe, but, but there are times when I really, I don't know if I believe enough. Help my unbelief. I need something else, Lord, in my life. Isn't that your heart cry at times? How many times has that happened in 2017? How many times do you think that's going to happen in 2018? Probably a lot, and you're absolutely right. You see, as we close this year, embark on a, on a new year, I want it to be our petition and our prayer as a church, and I hope you would make it your prayer as an individual as well, that your prayer would be, Lord, in 2018, increase my faith. Increase my faith. And the reason we can do this, we see that the apostles in the passage that Ray read for us and we'll be meditating on, this is the petition that the apostles make of the Lord Jesus. They ask the Lord Jesus to increase their faith. But it raises a question in my mind. If I want to approach this new year and say, Lord, increase my faith, that sometimes scares me. But it also drives me to ask the question, what would it look like if my faith were increased? What would it feel like to have more faith? Would there be an aura around me? Would I just feel more confident? Would, I, would, would someone say, wow, you really look holy today? I mean, is, is that what we expect? Would we, would we do more daring things? 
Is that how we would know that we had increased faith? So what should we expect if God answers our prayer? Increase our faith. So that's what we want to look at this morning. And I'll look at this passage under two headings, what I call precipitating teaching and a gracious, gracious correction. First of all, the precipitating teaching. What I mean by that is what precipitated, what prompted the apostles to ask the Lord Jesus to increase their faith? What prompts you and me to ask the Lord to increase our faith? Well, in this immediate context, we see there's two things that Jesus says about sin. All right. The first thing, he says, he talks about the seriousness of sin. He says in verse 1, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And that phrase, temptation to sin, is really one Greek word, and it, it talks about a trap. All right. It really describes this bait stick on a trap. A stumbling block. All right? And so Jesus is saying, look, we live in a world fallen in sin and temptations abound everywhere. You, you, you and I can't go through life. You are not going to go through another year thinking, I'm just going to not have to suffer any temptation towards sin. That's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. It's going to happen as long as we are in this world. But, he says... But don't you, don't you be a trap. Don't you be a stumbling block and cause someone else to sin. It's going to come. There are going to be temptations. But don't you, Las Tierras Church, don't you, members of this church, don't you cause one of these little ones. Now, the little ones could be children. Oh, this is sobering as parents. Don't you, parents, cause your children to sin. But maybe it's just not children, our children, but rather little ones, young disciples of the Lord, humble disciples of the Lord. And Jesus is saying, don't you be the one to lead someone astray, to lead them away from truth and grace and lead them into the path of error and sin. Don't you be the one. And you think about this for a moment. And you wonder, Lord, are the things that I've said in my life in this past year, the things that I've done, or even the things I've not done, because there's plenty of things that we're called to do that we don't do. And so by our example, our passive example, we could be leading someone astray. And, and you begin to see, wow, if you reflect on this, this is sobering. This is hard. And Jesus... He wants us to understand how serious this is. And he says, it would be better for you and for me to have a millstone. Okay, if you would put up this picture. Just if you don't know what a millstone is. <laughs> okay, we're not talking a little pebble. We're talking about this huge stone that they would use to grind the grain. It would be better for you 
to take that millstone, tie it around your neck, and then throw yourself into the sea. What is he talking about? It's better for you to be drowned than for you and I to cause a little one to sin. Man, do you let that sink in? No pun intended. you go, wow, this is hard. Now I have to think about all the things I say, the things that I do, the things that I don't do. See, in our individualistic culture, you begin to realize Jesus is so countercultural, and we don't live in isolation from one another, do we? We're part of a body. We live in relationships. Okay? And what we do, what we don't do, affect other people. It simply is the truth. We're responsible for one another. And he's making us think about whether we cause other people to sin. That's hard. But what he says next is even harder, I think. He talks about forgiveness of sins. Let me pose it, pose it to you this way. In a multiple choice question. What do you do when someone has sinned against you? Choice A. You voice your concerns and your complaints and you quickly go to the elders. B. You ignore the person and pray and hope the problem goes away. C. You complain about them behind their back. Especially when you're praying with other people. D, all of the above. E, none of the above. Jesus is clear. Verse 3, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must. Oh, that's a hard word, isn't it? You must forgive him or her. Jesus is saying, you don't hold their sin against them. No, and you don't just kind of let that resentment build uh, build up. You go to that person, you go to him and you her, and what does he say? He says, you have a conversation, you can go to Matthew 18 and read verses 15 to 20, and there's this whole process of how you go and approach a person who sinned against you. You have to have a conversation, but Jesus says here, you go to that person, what do you do? You rebuke them. Oh, when was the last time you rebuked somebody who sinned against you? Most of us, when we come to this passage here, it's very clear, isn't it not? We come to this passage and go, oh, who am I to rebuke somebody? Who am I to do that? I, I understand. Who are you? You're a sinner just like that other person. So you know you can't go and rebuke them thinking you're more, self, you know, you're more righteous than the other person. No. But you can't. Just imagine that the problem is going to go away. It's not going to go away. And Jesus is calling us to be serious about sin. But you know, let me just say this for a moment. You know that if you have to go and rebuke somebody, you know that Jesus also taught that before you go and, and point out the, the speck in the, your brother's eye, you've got to look at what? The beam in your own eye? Right? You know that. So to be able to do this, to rebuke somebody, to, to ask him, to look... What you've done 
I don't think it's, it, it comports with Scripture. And Jesus says, this is how you ought to act and how do you live. And, and you're not doing that. So I, I urge you to repent and just return to the ways of the Lord. I'm not saying it because I'm better than you. I'm just saying it because it's here. Jesus is serious about sin. And he says to you and to me, and this is not anything new. He says when someone sins against you, they come to you. You're not counting one, two, three, seven. And the eighth time, good, I don't have to forgive them. You know that's not what he's teaching. It's unlimited. As many times as the person repents, you forgive. And this is hard. This is just plain hard. If you've ever experienced someone sinning against you, you know the pain, you know the heartache that you've experienced. And here Jesus is saying to you, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I know that you've been offended and I know you hurt deeply and I know there's a lot of resentment building up, but I'm not going to let you off the hook. You must forgive. And that's what is so hard. Because to go to somebody, to have a conversation with someone who's offended you and sinned against you, you know how hard that is? To do it graciously, to do it humbly, to do it truthfully, to do it lovingly. You open yourself up, you become vulnerable to what? To the person rejecting you, to the person calling you names, to the person hurting you more. And many of us say, no, 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 no. I don't want to do this. I'm just going to pray for them and just pray it goes away. The pain is real, but so is the command from Jesus. Some of you like to say, well, I'll forgive when I begin to forget. Very unlikely you're going to forget anytime soon. Won't you rather forgive in order to forget? Maybe. You know God forgets. You know that, and that's where you want to rest. He does not remember your sins anymore. And that's where you want to go when it's so hard. And don't wait either for your feelings to kick in. No me nace en el corazón. I'm just not feeling it. Oh, my dear friends, you know that forgiveness is not a feeling. There's so much more we could say, but this, all I'm telling you about right now is I'm just giving you background. This is what precipitated the disciples' request. Now you understand. Now you understand why they say to Jesus after hearing this, Jesus said, you got to go and rebuke people of their sin. you got to go call them to repentance. And then you got to forgive them when they repent. And they say, this is hard. Who can do this? Oh Lord, increase our faith. Now you understand where they're coming from. They had faith in Jesus. They believed in him. They were his apostles. But 
what Jesus was asking them to do as disciples is hard. And what Jesus asks you and me to do from one perspective is impossible, is hard. And so you and I, we pray, increase our faith. Now, Jesus' response is intriguing. And this is what we want to look at secondly. His gracious, what I call gracious correction. Or you can really call it a gracious redirection in verses 5 and 6. In verse 6, Jesus replies, To their petition, increase our faith. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Why does Jesus talk about mulberry trees? Look, we're going we're to talk about mulberry trees first, and then we'll talk about the, the mustard seed. He says that if you had this tiny faith, you could uproot, you could say to a tree, be uprooted and cast into a sea. Look, I have spent a lot of years and a lot of time taking care of my trees. When we moved into our house, I planted all kinds of trees. And if you've been to my house, you've seen the trees, all right, they're kind of taking over. I would be really upset if Jesus told me, if you had more faith, you would remove those trees. I don't think that the trees that God created, you know, mulberry trees being one of them, that he said, you know what, that was a mistake. I really didn't want mulberry trees on the faces of this earth. So could you just remove them all? What's the point? Think about this. What's the point of removing mulberry trees from the planet? In 1992, you know it was prohibited in El Paso? to plant mulberry trees? (laughs) A species of mulberry trees, why? Because of the pollen. But Jesus is not talking about that here. Just in case you're wondering. I'm doubtful that Jesus is interested in seeing the earth rid of mulberry trees. So what's his point? Well, it's a figure of speech. He's given us an illustration. See, some rabbis, Jewish rabbis taught that mulberry trees could extend their roots into the ground and these roots would grow and survive for 600 years. You want to talk about a root system that spreads deep and wide farther out. 600 years. So the picture that Jesus has given us is of something that is so deeply embedded, so solidly rooted in the ground that it's difficult to remove. It's seemingly impossible to accomplish. How do you uproot a mulberry tree? I had a little plum tree that I had to uproot. And that took a lot of work. I had to call Danny Hicks to come. You know, the landscaping company. It was just a little tree. And it was only there for seven years. Jesus understands that what he has just told them is challenging. And he is affirming that it's hard. It's as hard as uprooting 
a mulberry tree whose roots have been growing and extending for 600 years. See, the disciples see the challenge before them as Christians. And they think the solution is what? Lord, we need bigger faith. We need greater faith. Because what you're calling us to do requires giant size faith. See? And haven't you thought that? Sometimes you're, you're called by God. You read the scriptures. You, you listen to a sermon. And you just feel the Lord convicting you to do something. You go, I just can't do that, Lord. You've got to give me more faith. If we only had more faith, then we would evangelize more. If we only had more faith, we would speak to our neighbor about Jesus, right? If we only had more faith, we could do great things for the Lord. Oh, Lord, increase our faith. But you know what? Jesus doesn't agree completely. And he challenges a perspective about size, about quantity. So let's look at the size of faith. And he talks to them about the mustard seed. So just in case, if you give us the next slide, uh, if you've never seen a mustard seed, just that's the kind of size we're talking about. It's pretty small. Now, there are probably some seeds that are smaller than that, but at that time, okay, that's, that's small. None of us say, yes, I aspire to have mustard seed size faith. See, what Jesus does, they're thinking i got to have more. And he says, no, 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 no. You don't need great faith. Little faith, mustard seed size faith will do. He's correcting them gently. Because, see, the issue is not whether you have great faith, but whether you have any faith in Jesus at all. Do you have any faith in Jesus at all? And if you have any faith in Jesus at all, it is significant. It is powerful. If it's in Him, and even though it's the size of a mustard seed. Just the other day I was reading an article about a young man who was raised in a Christian church. And in this particular church, they taught a lot about degrees or size of faith. And everyone in this church had it pretty clear that faith the size of a mustard seed was better than no faith at all. However, they reasoned that the really faithful Christians were those who possessed a bigger faith. Such people were favored by God. These were the more spiritual people, the people with bigger faith. But all that came to a head for this young man when his mother was diagnosed with cancer. And so the members of the church gathered together and they prayed for her healing. They were certain. They were certain if they prayed, believing the cancer would be removed, that it would be removed, that she would get better. So they prayed. They believed. But she got worse. So they prayed more. They prayed harder. They pleaded God for bigger faith. Because she wasn't healed right away. Many people started to point the fingers at other people in the church. Says, you must not have enough faith. You must not even have faith the size of a mustard seed. That's why she's not being healed. They kept on praying. Pleading for God to grant them more faith. Faith big enough to result in her healing. But she grew worse instead. And the young man recalled the scene... 
outside the hospital room the night before she died. He writes this. It's as if if the whole church family was gathered outside her hospital room in prayer, some on their knees, others with raised hands, everyone was wailing and believing and seeking to turn their mustard seed-sized faith into something bigger, something more deserving of God's attention, something that would finally get results and heal mom of her cancer. And the man recalled what the pastor said. We've got to have more faith. Everyone should join hands together and let's pray for more and greater faith. And by 8 o'clock the next day, she passed away. Let me tell you what happened to this guy. He left the church. He quit going to church. And for years, he's filled with resentment. Resentment toward the church family. Resentment toward the pastor. Resentment to the people who thought it was his fault. He was the culprit. Because he did not have adequately sized faith so that God would have compassion and healing on his mother. And that's why he walked away. And I can understand it. If it has to do with my size faith, whether little or big, if it has to do with something I have to do, that I have to accomplish, of course, it's just a matter of time before I walk away. It's a matter of time before we despair. For who can produce that? Oh, when life is easy, yes. But when life is hard and you're faced with difficult situations, there is no way that you can accomplish anything. Do not get caught in the morass of thinking of whether you have enough faith. Whether you have 16 ounces of faith, 32 ounces, supersized faith, That's not the point, is it? Jesus is teaching that even a small amount of faith is sufficient to face the challenges of a disciple. Now why? Why is a tiny bit of faith enough? Because it has nothing to do with the size of faith that you possess, but everything to do with the object of your faith, the one in whom you are trusting, the one that you are believing in, the one that you are resting on, the one that you are depending on. That's where the power is. That's He has the power to uproot the mulberry trees of your life. You don't have that power. Is there something so hard for the Lord? No, but hard for you and for me, of course. But not for the Lord. Not for the King. See, this is freeing when you finally understand this is what the Gospel is about. This is Christianity 101. It's not about what you do. It's not you working up your faith, but it's you understanding this one in whom you believe. You understand His power, His grace, His wisdom, His patience, His strength. And you rely and you rest on Him. That's where we go. And so Jesus is redirecting them as if to say, stop looking at yourselves and look at me. Look at who I am. Look at 
what I've done. Look at my miracles. Look at what I've taught you. And then you'll see it at the cross when I hang at the cross and I bear your shame and guilt and sin. You'll see power there at the cross. Not in you. Some of you have experienced this redirecting people. Some of you have gone through some very difficult times in your life. Some severe affliction and trial. And non-Christians have observed you. And have you ever had a non-Christian come to you? They've seen your poise. They've seen how you've had hope. They've seen how you've not despaired. They've seen you cry, but without despair. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, I wish I had your faith? If anyone ever does, dear brothers and sisters, let me urge you to respond this way. It's not my faith you need. It's my Savior that you need. My faith is immaterial. But my Savior and my God, He's the one who sustains me. See, the power of faith to uproot mulberry trees, mountain, whatever challenge you face, and whatever challenge you may face in 2018. The power rests not in the exercise in us and we who exercise faith, but in Jesus, who is the object of our faith. Leon Morris, a theologian, said it like this. It is not so much great faith in God that is required as faith in a great God. You have a great God and Savior. And when you and I pray, Lord, increase our faith, what might that look like? What might that look like in your life if you make this your petition? And I would suggest to you that it looks like this. It's a gaze, if you will. It's a gaze in which you look at all those hard, seemingly hard things that you'll encounter in 2018. But you, as you look at those things, you look away from yourself. You don't look to yourself and say, hey, I wonder if I have enough faith to deal with this. No, you look to your God. You look to the greatness of God. You look to the power, to the wisdom, to the sanctification, to the salvation, to the justification. You look to all that God is and what He has done. And you lean on Him. So, let me give you a few examples as we apply this. And I'm going to urge you to just think about this, and you have to make application, because this is all so personal and for each one of us. But if you are in a situation in which someone has sinned against you, and you are struggling to forgive them, you feel this mulberry tree root system resistance in your soul. What might increase faith look like in your life? Perhaps something like this. That you meditate and you think about the Lord Jesus who took all your sins. Everything you've ever done in the past, in the present, and the future. 
and he went to the cross and there he suffered not simply a drowning not, but he took the millstone that should have been around your neck and he wrapped it around his life and he descended not to the depth of the sea but to the depth of hell he suffered there and experienced it all taking your sin how many of your sins seven times has he forgiven you Oh, no. Seventy times? Seven thousand? Seven million. As you and I think about how He has forgiven us, I think it's at that moment that you take the Gospel and the Holy Spirit comes and begins to take that truth to soften your heart and compels you to go and forgive. I'll give you another example. If you're in a relationship, if you're in a relationship that is toxic, you need to get out. Or you're in a situation that is really hard. But you know, change is hard. None of us like to change. Change is simply impossible at times. And I want you to think about this great, the great change that went on in your life if you're a Christian. Think about the change of relationship that God produced by His power and His grace in your life. At one time, you were in relationship to sin. At one time, you were a follower of the devil. Not a pretty picture. At one time, you were in this relationship that was leading you on this path to death, to eternal death. And God in His grace and His mercy saw that you could not change yourself. You couldn't get out of that relationship. And so what did God do in His kindness? He simply came down and He gave you a new heart. He gave you new affections. He changed your relationship so you're no longer under the dominion of sin, but you are under the kingship of Jesus. In relationship to Him, you are His son and you're His daughter. And you come to know His love. See, you think about relationships and situations. I can't change it. Of course you can't. But this same God who is immutable does not change in Himself. He changes you. And He changes our situations. So is there something that you will face that seems to be so impossible? You go, how will this change? You call out on this immutable God to change you and me. Parents, you face situations with your children that are hard. Perhaps you have a child who's disobedient, strong-willed, wayward. What does it look like to have increased faith? How do you lean on Jesus when your children are wayward? What if you're struggling with porn? What if you're struggling with gossip and cheating and lying? What does it look like for you to say, Lord, increase my faith? How do you lean on Jesus and what He has done, who He is on His promises, on His death, His resurrection, and His intercession? How do you lean on Him who is the reigning Lord with whom there is nothing too difficult? Is it because, is it so hard for us because we're so accustomed to leaning on ourselves and to looking at our size faith and Jesus has to remind us, no, look to me. Look to me. 
you know, one of the things we're doing as a congregation, we've been praying and working towards seeing a facility. <laughs> I, I'm honest, I'm going to just tell you honestly, sometimes I think that's probably not going to come in my lifetime. That means my faith is about a third of the size of a grain of a mustard seed. It is tiny. I want the Lord to grow me and grow us as a congregation. I look at our resources and I go, oh, that's small. And I need you to pray for me and I will pray for you that we would stop looking at our resources. Do you understand? Don't look at the amount of money you have or you don't have. Look at the great God who has all things. Let's look at Him this year. Let's look at what He can do, what He can provide. Oh, that's what I desire for us. That we would cast ourselves on the greatness, the power, and the wisdom and the majesty and the sufficiency of a great God and Savior. That's what we want 2018 to look like. George MacDonald, he's a British author, in the late 1800s he wrote a, a fantasy. And one fantasy story he wrote was called The Golden Key. And it's this adventurous wanderings of a boy and a girl. And the, the girl is a tangle and the boy is mossy. They find this golden key uh, at the foot of a rainbow, and, they, and their adventure is to find the keyhole that this key belongs to. So they're searching for this, and they're together, and they get separated. And in the search uh, that Tangle has of looking for the boy, uh, Mossy, she comes into this cave, and there she encounters the old man of the earth. And she asks about how she can find the boy. And the old man of the earth pulls away a stone from the cave's floor and says, this is the way down there. Tangle looks down in the dark. It's pitch black. There are no stairs. And she says to him, there are no stairs. No, he responds, there are no stairs. You must throw yourself in. Is there another way, she asks. No, there is no other way. My dear friends, there is no other way to grow in faith but throw yourself unreservedly on Jesus. Could you make that your prayer this year? To throw yourself unreservedly on Jesus. To lean on Him, whatever mulberry tree you encounter, whatever difficulty, hard thing you encounter, to cast yourself on Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reminder and how you cause us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to place them on you. And some of us, with fear and trepidation, we face a new year, and we hope it's better than this past year, because it's been a difficult year. Oh, but Lord, increase our faith so that in this year, we would rely more on you. 
that we would gaze not on ourselves, but on who you are and what you've accomplished and your promises. Lord, would you do that for us as individuals, as families? Would you do that, Lord, for us as a church? And we'll give you the glory. We'll give you the honor. For you alone are our Savior and our God. We can go to no one else. And Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here who has never trusted in you, that you by your Holy Spirit would so move now in their heart that they would abandon their rebellion, their sin. Turn away from it and give themselves to you. Unreservedly to you, trusting you as Savior and Lord. And Lord, for us who have given ourselves to you, but yet we know that there's still so much more to learn about you. For who can exhaust your infinite, glorious, majestic character? Give us eyes this year to see beyond what we normally see. To go up higher and higher and further into this glorious grace and majesty of our salvation. Oh Lord, that we might rest, that we might rejoice in our great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.